Good evening and welcome to the latest Institute for Government Data Bytes, getting things done with data in government. Uh, tonight supported by Microsoft. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital Government at the Institute for Government. A warm welcome to all of you from Databytes Mission Control. Now, this is our 10th Databytes event, so as is traditional, hands up if you've been to Databytes before. I'm trusting you to actually do that. Excellent. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Databytes event. Excellent. Welcome. I hope you have a fantastic evening. Now, not only is this our 10th Databytes event, it's also our second virtual Databytes um, after last month's effort. And now there were remarkably few technical hitches. In fact, pretty much all of the technical hitches were me managing to mute myself. Never managed to do that during a work meeting, did it multiple times during a public event. So I'll try not to do that again tonight. I mean, Anyway, uh, let's get started with some housekeeping. I am just going to share my screen with you now. So, we are on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. You can join in on Twitter using the hashtag IFGDatabytes and also by following IFG events. And if you'd like to submit questions to our fantastic presenters, you can do that in three ways, uh, using the hashtag on Twitter, by going to Slido, which is bit.ly slash SlidoDB10, or if you ask a question in the live stream chat, uh, one of my colleagues will drop that into Slido and I'll be able to put it to our presenters. So we may have some new faces here tonight, so a quick recap of why we're doing this and indeed what this is. Data means lots of different things across government, from statistics to personal data to information management. We wanted to bring those different communities in and around government together. But we also wanted to reach beyond those communities and show people not in the weeds of data and digital what better data actually means and what it looks like in practice. And we wanted to put some interesting stories and good practice on the record. So how does it work? Well, you're going to see four presentations this evening. Each speaker will have eight minutes to present. Yes, just eight minutes to present. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. You will see the famous timer at the bottom of your screen. Once the speaker has finished presenting for eight minutes, uh, they will then take questions for eight minutes. Yes, eight minutes. Uh, as I said, put those via Twitter, Slido or the live stream and I'll be able to put them to our speakers. Now, if uh, you'd, we'll then move on to the next speaker. So, uh, if you'd like to watch our previous events, uh, you can go to bit.ly slash ifgdatabytes. Obviously, don't do that during the event itself. Uh, you can see Kirsten, Haroon, Tonu, and Alice there from uh, our last event. Um, some very credible bookshelves there from Kirsten and Tonu. Um, good to see them showing themselves some shelf respect. But for Haroon and Alice, definitely some room for shelf improvement. More jokes like that, and it's only a matter of time before I get shelved, I think. Um, you can also use that IFG Databytes link uh, to get to the report that we published last month about our first eight events. Now, as regular attendees are aware, I tend to use uh, this opportunity to run through, show off some of the IFG's data-related work uh, since we last met. I think it'd be fair to say it's been a particularly chart-tastic month at the IFG. You could say we've excelled ourselves. Uh, looking at everything from reforming the tax system to the UK's approach to net zero, Keir Starmer's election as Labour leader and his new shadow cabinet. Yes, that was this month. 
and our event on 300 years of British prime ministers, or we've been looking at the impact of coronavirus on GP appointments, on the justice system, on different sectors of the economy. And of course, also how we might feel about our personal data being used to curtail coronavirus, what the easing of our exit from restrictions might look like, and some testing times and target practice for the government. Uh, we're also trying to stay on top of data-related developments in the government response to COVID-19, so please do add to our list on our timeline at bit.ly slash c19govdata. Now, those of you who've been before will also be delighted to welcome back an old friend, our trusty ministerial resignations chart, as International Trade Minister Connor Burns became the fifth minister to resign under Boris Johnson earlier this week, taking Mr Johnson too clear of any other post-1979 prime minister at the same point in their tenure. Who needs the football season to restart for some exciting premiership action? Now, on the subject of politics, today is a significant anniversary. Anybody know what happened 10 years ago today? No, it's not when lockdown started, though it may feel like it. And no, it's not when I last had a haircut, though it may feel like that too. It's actually the 10th anniversary of the 2010 general election. This is what Parliament looked like after 2005 election, a clear Labour majority. And then, of course, in 2010, uh, we end up with the first coalition in Westminster since 19, uh, 1945. But it's amazing how much that framed the narratives for the next decade, a real focus on reducing the size of the state and austerity. Take civil service staff numbers, for instance. They fell from 470,000, not quite to the 380,000 expected, but not far off. And they kept on falling right up until the EU referendum. And of course, staff numbers started to rise again. Then, of course, there's public spending. Uh, there was a large deficit after the financial crisis. And then through budget cuts and controlling spending, that sort of came down uh, by the end of the decade. Although, of course, the current coronavirus context puts a very different complexion on that with questions about resilience in public services. Something else the coalition did was to pass the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which set parliamentary terms at five years and fixed the election date. In a very different world, tomorrow would be the 2020 general election. But instead of being at the very start of a third parliament since 2010, we're actually into a fourth and we'll make it into a fifth by 2025. So there may be a global pandemic, but it could be worse. There could be an election tomorrow. Enough about the possible future and back to the actual present. Uh, we've got a brilliant lineup for you tonight. So this is who you'll be listening to. First up, we'll have Tom McKins from Citizens Advice uh, talking about how web traffic to their website sh shines a light on citizens' concerns during the coronavirus crisis. After that, we'll hear from Eleanor, Eleanor Stewart, uh, who'll be talking about data as diplomacy. She's from the Foreign Commonwealth Office. After that, uh, Glenn Robinson from our sponsors for the evening, Microsoft, will be talking about keeping data safe and the benefits of scale. And then we'll hear from Terence Eden, Head of Open Technology at NHSX, about why making things open makes things better. So four fantastic presentations in store. Um, our next event, uh, put it in your diary, will be on the 3rd of June 2020. After our presentations this evening, remember to join us for virtual drinks. Uh, the link is bit.ly slash db10drinks. The password is ifgtdb10. You can see what we've done there. I think I joked last week about um, having a drinking game throughout uh, the event. Um, we take no responsibility if any of you choose to do that, of course, but please do join us afterwards. 
another thank you to our sponsors for this evening, Microsoft. We are reliant on uh, people supporting this event to keep the series going. And if you'd like to follow in Microsoft's footsteps, please do email my colleague Pritesh on the email address that's on the screen now. And if you know anybody who should be presenting at a future Databytes event, please do get in touch with me. So that's it for my opening presentation. I'm now going to stop sharing. Hopefully you can just see me again. And uh, we should hopefully now also be able to see Tom from Citizens Advice. Um, so whenever you're ready, okay. um, the timer will start and uh, you can start presenting. Okay. So uh, uh, my name is Tom McInnes. I'm a chief analyst at Citizens Advice. And I'm here to talk about our uh, website data and what that tells us about the, uh, the COVID crisis. Now, my job title is chief analyst. And in our team, we sit across the data from uh, all of our services, which includes your local citizens advice on the high street, uh, as well as the phone lines that we run, as well as the website. But we're going to focus on the website today. And the kind of the highlights of it all are that we saw uh, record levels of traffic to our website at the beginning of the crisis. Um, in response, uh, we developed a lot of new advice content for particular corona-related uh, issues, all of which individually also had um, a lot of traffic. Uh, total numbers, uh, total traffic for the website has since gone back to normal. But what people are looking at is very different from what they were looking at uh, pre-crisis. So we're going to go back and uh, look at where this all came from. So what we're looking at here is a graph showing uh, page views on the website going back to the start of the year. And you see this kind of like weekly pattern where those dips are at the weekends and the, the higher figures tend to be Mondays. And this takes us back to uh, Sunday, the 15th of March. And that was the weekend where, uh, like, for instance, all the football had been cancelled that weekend. There was still, the coronavirus was a really big deal, but you wouldn't know that from our statistics on the website. People weren't really showing up in massive numbers. We had been monitoring what was going on on the site, and we did notice that there were some more people looking at, for instance, the sick pay page. But um, overall, there was nothing really out of the ordinary happening. So if we roll forward a week, this is the week after, and this is where traffic really starts to rise. Um, on Monday the 16th, there was uh, advice from the Prime Minister to work at home if you could. And actually, Citizens Advice, myself and my colleagues, we were already working from home at this stage, as I'm sure a lot of people watching this were as well. So twice within that week, which I think is the Tuesday and the Wednesday, we saw the most traffic we'd ever seen on the website in a, in a single day. So at that stage, things were really starting to pick up. We can roll it forward another couple of weeks. And then we see uh, a massive peak the week after. So this uh, big peak here is on the 23rd. It's the day that lockdown was announced. Um, and in the week as a whole, we saw the busiest week we'd ever had. So it's 2.4 million. Uh, page views in that week. The Tuesday there, which was also really high, is the day that the Chancellor announced a package for uh, self-employed people. So um, we kind of see that the, these spikes are associated with particular announcements and particular things in the news. And actually, the, if we go and break it down kind of hour by hour, you can see it really clearly. So this is the 23rd. This is the busiest day 
on our website ever. And this rather inelegantly circled period here is the bit where uh, the prime minister is giving his TV address saying that the country is going into lockdown. So that dip is actually when he was on TV giving his speech and then immediately after it's over, we saw a rush of people onto the website, almost as if it's like peak time, even though it's like 8.30 in the evening and people were looking for all sorts of different things around housing, around furlough, um, but coronavirus was the thing that was driving people to the site. So we've kind of seen the overall numbers, but it's worth us breaking down a little bit, like what were the different things that people were interested in? So this is a graph of uh, the month of March on our website. And at the beginning of the month, there was a rise in the number of people looking at holiday and flight cancellations, because that was kind of the first thing that came through. People worried about their, their holidays. And then you can see this sort of maroonish line here, which is around sick pay pages. That was our first big spike. But when you get later in the month, what's really driving these numbers up is firstly concern around universal credit. So our universal credit pages, which are always a big deal, Universal credit is a big thing for citizens' advice. We give a lot of advice on it. They went, you know, went through the roof, and there's a huge spike there. But there's also a single page there called "If you can't pay your bills because of coronavirus," um, and that became really, really popular too. So, what that was an example of was us responding to a need out there, putting together some uh, some advice on the website, and then people really kind of uh, responding to it in in big numbers. Another way of looking at this is to say, look, as to rank all of the pages and see which ones go up and go down. So this is a graph put together by my colleagues, uh, Gemma and Mankeet. Um, and the, what we've done is highlighted some of, the, some of the most popular pages there. And you can see that the stuff that was popular at the beginning of the month isn't popular at the end. And a lot of these, these things that are the most popular come the end. The, if your employer has told you not to work, which is basically our furlough page, uh, uh, coronavirus, what benefits you can get. These didn't exist at the beginning of the month. We built them and sort of developed them in response to a need that we saw from outside. But you also see stuff around sick pay, redundancy pay being really popular as well. And so by the end of March, what people were looking for from citizens advice was completely different to what they were looking for at the beginning of the month. Um, and then if you go into April, what you get is like quite a sort of static picture, actually. And that pattern, because the pattern that we got from the end of March carries on. The single most popular page throughout all of April was uh, the furlough page, if your employer has told you not to work. Um, although we also see a lot of traffic on the stuff around self-employment and redundancy. They're uh, really popular pages, too. So we've kind of moved through this real kind of peak period where we were seeing traffic like at levels that we'd never really seen before. And now we've sort of settled into a, a different pattern where numbers are a bit more steady, but it's mainly around coronavirus type stuff. Universal credit is a big deal though, and it's still like driving a lot of people to our site. So um, we, what we can do is compare our numbers to the DWP numbers. So. The DWP have started putting out uh, data on universal credit a little bit more often than they were before. And so we can compare our numbers to their numbers. So what we've got in this graph is uh, DWP's uh, claim figures in light blue and our uh, website hits in darker blue. And we noticed that our numbers seem to track their numbers 
quite well. The, the patterns look quite similar. So what some of the uh, some of my colleagues did, this is uh, Gemma and Morgan, they put together a um, like a prediction model basically that says, uh, given our numbers, what do we think is going to happen? So this dotted red line here was our prediction for the last two weeks of universal credit claims. And you can see that it matches it really, really closely. So we think that we've got a data source now that can tell us about what's going on before it actually, uh, before the, the government releases the data. So, but looking further ahead still, um, at the moment, people want corona-related specific advice. And actually, policy intervention has made a difference. So there aren't, uh, the sanctions regime on universal credit, for instance, has been relaxed. So we're not seeing the demand for help on that kind of stuff. The same around sort of PIP assessments, too. But there are other problems that people are just storing up. So there's uh, things around kind of debt, for instance. We're not seeing the same demand for debt advice that we used to. But that's only because people have got more important things to be dealing with. And we think that these things are going to come back later, presumably, probably after lockdown is ended. So I'm going to stop there. And I think then we might take some questions. Perfect timing, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. Um, if people would like to put questions, just a reminder, you can do it using the hashtag IFGDataBytes. Uh, you can go to our Slido page, which is bit.ly slash slidodb10, or you can drop it into the live stream chat, and one of my colleagues will pop it into the Slido. So please do start submitting some questions. Um, otherwise, you'll have to suffer me asking them, so that's where I'm going to start. Um, so, Tom, the, I saw the prediction um, sort of chart uh, doing the runs on Twitter yesterday. Extraordinary. Um, I wondered if you were able to say any more about how exactly you sort of did that and how your previous work with uh, using web traffic to understand how people um, are using government services, how that might have informed some of that. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, we've been trying to take a different approach to how we talk about data internally. So what we're trying to do now is have it as more of a conversation about what we're seeing and less of a kind of, uh, a thing where someone develops some numbers and then they go into a report and the, you're never quite sure kind of what the process is. So we're trying to have like more of a discussion around this now. And I think this actually develops on one of those kind of like little chat hangout things where somebody says, have you noticed that this looks a lot like this? Um, and then someone else in the team can kind of take it away and, and do it. And uh, I think it's, a, it's been described as a simple regression. And that's, that's what's going on there. We've got our daily data, they've got theirs. We've always kind of wanted to be in a position where we can use our stuff to predict what's going on elsewhere. And we used to have quite a good uh, handle on what was going on in uh, appeals for PIP. Because we used to know that people had come to see us about their personal independence payment. And then the data from DWP and I think the MOJ was like three months, six months behind. But we would know that it was coming before it came. And there are certain kind of quite administrative type procedures where we know what's happening because the, the actual process of applying for something or getting something is why people have come to Citizens Advice for Help. So we've got a really well-matched data set on that. Um, on the other stuff around uh, using the web data, you know, what, what we've got is kind of uh, reach and what we've got is a, fair, a really quick um, turnaround on these things. So we can kind of, we can spot things really quickly. Um, so we, we use it in our advocacy work all the time. 
um, particularly around things like universal credit and housing and that kind of stuff. We can use our web data to say something quite quick around what's happening. And what always strikes me looking at it is how influenced it is by uh, policy announcements and kind of like announcements out there in the country. That's what drives people onto our, our site. So when Rishi Sunak says something about self-employment, people come to us. When uh, Katie Price filed for bankruptcy, loads of people came to us as well to find out what bankruptcy is. So um, we get a lot of traffic through um, external events. Excellent, thank you. Um, we've got a couple of questions uh, on Slido. So um, I'll go with Emma's first. Um, are citizens advised working with government uh, to use their data to inform policymaking around future coronavirus progression? Yeah, we are. Um, so we've set up, um, oh, well, basically we share this data, the stuff that you've been looking at, we share with uh, different government departments, cabinet office, um, and just we, we've actually just taken to sharing it in its like raw spreadsheet form. We do write it up and we write reports about it and we, um, you know, try and sort of give an overarching narrative of what we see. But we also just like share the data in a, in a, in a, in a more open way than we have done before, actually. And we're looking to do a bit more of that. At the moment, we've kind of we've had individual conversations with individual departments and we've shared the data off the back of that but we're looking to just basically share it a bit more openly than that. Excellent, that sort of segues really nicely into the next question, which is from Andrew at the uh, Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Is charity website behavior data a public good? How can governments make better use of it? Um, should there be formalized processes? Should governments pay for API access, um, et cetera? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question, slightly above my uh, pay grade, I think. But uh, we know that they are using it, and the reason they use it is because it's instant, um, because um, it gets you, you know, it turns around the next day. I guess things that we'd have to think about are like, uh, you know, we want people to use it. Like, we, we, we think it's useful. Um, so we're happy for them to, to use it. We've not set up APIs at the moment to, to, to do it. Um, that might, it, it would be a good way to think about it going forward. But right now we're just sort of uh, starting to understand the power of it really. Excellent. Um, another couple, oh, lots of questions coming in now. Uh, so this is from John. Uh, do you have any data on what people searched for but didn't find, or is it only successful landings on actually existing pages? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's it's mainly about what people ended up looking at, um, but we've got all of their search stuff. We've we've got all of the search terms that people look for. Um, and we tend to kind of think, have we got the right content for these searches? So if we see a lot of people searching for a thing and we've not done something about it, that or we don't have any content for them, that probably tells them tells us that we should. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we we get search data from like a few different sources and we use it to refine our, uh, our kind of offer. Excellent. Um, questions coming in thick and fast now, actually. Um, so Peter Wells uh, is asking, uh, do citizens advise publish breakdowns by geography to help devolved administrations or local government? Um, so and in fact, that, that ties up nicely with another question, which yeah. is, do you, um, how, do you make any attempts to understand where visitors are coming from uh, to try to understand regional variations in quality of service. Yeah, okay. So it's an anonymous website. 
so we don't really take care of people's details but we have we do have a sample on the website of about 20 percent of uh, visits we ask for a location um, and around about half of those people are happy to share so we get if you like 10 percent of our data uh, with a I got like a, actually a latitude and longitude co coordinate which we could map to a local authority um, and we're an England and Wales organization specific well I work for an England and Wales organization there are citizens by Scotland as well um, but yeah we've been, it's quite important for us to be able to talk about the Welsh uh, aspect of what we do um, because we've got a, a different relationship with a, or a specific relationship with the Welsh government um, we, so we do we share the the local geographical stuff within our own network. So for the local members who are on your high street, they know how many people in their local authority um, went onto our website. And so that's something that they can talk to their LA about, which is handy. Um, but the data is quite experimental at the moment. So we're looking at ways to kind of make sure that we're comfortable enough with the quality before we start uh, publishing that. Brilliant. And we've got um, an offer as well as uh, a question. So this is from Guy Marcus at the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, um, who'd be uh, very keen to discuss uh, government use and access to this data, but also has a question, which is how are you working with other charities to build up a picture of need? And what barriers are there to doing that, if any? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we're talking to uh, quite a lot of other charities actually about what, what's going on at the moment and so we're, we're talking about the like the the problems that we're all having to overcome in the sector at the moment so so for instance we we're set up as a we have a big face-to-face -face offer you know we see people face to face we sit down and we talk to them we can't do that right now and there's quite a few charities who are in that space as well in terms of like the barriers for overcoming working together well it's just the standards technology stuff isn't it i mean we've all got different uh, case management systems we've all got different ways of talking about things but we i think the way to get there is to like have good conversations about it and then you know down the line we would hopefully start to have a, a sort of a shared approach to doing this kind of stuff fantastic well that's taken us perfectly to time tom though i could have listened to you talk about that all evening um thank you very much indeed for for joining us and for presenting uh, absolutely fascinating thank you um, so our next speaker this evening is going to be Eleanor Stewart from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Hello, Eleanor. Um, you can I'm probably Chairman. see that you can, might now be able to tell the time from uh, the light that is flooding into my face. So I might try to do something about that while you're presenting. Um, but I'm delighted to have you. I know you've been, you've been working on um, transparency and open data in, in the UK government um, for, for, for some time now and um yeah wonderful to have you talking about uh, data as diplomacy so um whenever you're ready okay i will just share my screen and we can get going i think if i get this right okay so as gavin says i am the uh, head of transparency and data at the foreign office i'm also the data protection officer for my sins but i've been working in open data and transparency for um uh, at least the last decade I thought it would be interesting to share some of what we've done around data and diplomacy and using it as a diplomatic tool. Uh, and by diplomacy, I'm really talking about how we uh, manage international relations overseas uh, through our embassies, of which there are 260 different posts around the world uh, uh, run by the Foreign Office. There are a couple of extra trade posts, but that's the Foreign Office's uh, large 1HMG footprint. 
Um, and that really the Foreign Office does three core things. It's about national protecting national security, um, protecting promoting British interests overseas in terms of trade or security or economics, um, and providing consular services to protect um, British nationals and businesses as as they go around the world doing their their business and having holidays and all sorts of things, which is particularly challenging at the moment. Um, so I thought uh, probably the easiest thing is to give you a brief overview for those of you who can't remember of how the UK became the best in class for a period in open data and transparency. Um, we had the Power of Information Task Force in 2008, which was very forward thinking and innovative of us. And we moved um, and from that, we actually launched data.gov.uk in 2010, which uh, I think is just as important as the coalition government, Gavin. Um, and that was the first data portal and registry for anywhere in the world for government data. And it's the first government to do that. Um, and that's now grown and grown and grown exponentially. Um, having done that and with the political will behind uh, opening up a lot of data um, and making government much more transparent, um, we've uh, we began to get inquiries from other countries about how we did it. We were in a bit of a race with the US. We realised there were a lot of benefits. In the UK, we'd used it to promote economic, uh, uh, releasing economic value of the data government sat on. Um, we were also using it to drive improvements in public services and increase the accountability of government in a period of austerity. Um, so uh, all of those things actually are applicable to many, many other places around the world. Um, and... Following that, we decided that it would be a good idea to start using that internationally and set up something called the Open Government Partnership around four areas, which were anti-corruption, uh, access to information, public participation to use that information and open data underpinning all of those things. And we furthered that quite strongly as our presidency of the G8 in, in the beginning of 2013. And then in October 2013, we hosted uh, a summit for the Open Government Partnership, which had gone from five member countries to 61 in the space of two years. And it's one of the key things about the Open Government Partnership is to um, outline that it's not about governments deciding to do things. It's about government working with civil society organisations to co-create and develop plans that are independently assessed by peers as to how successful they are on a, on a regular cycle. Um, so really, in 2013, we began to look at how we could use this in improving some of our diplomacy or in-country projects, um, because diplomacy takes place at not just in the set-piece meetings at the UN or in the EU, but also in some of the work we do in-country to, to find common areas of interest, to support developing nations, um, look at different peacekeeping or, or change the way governments are working or try and improve them. So we were looking at open data, which is a fairly obvious one for us to look at. Uh, but we were also looking at how we use it to fight corruption, use that open data in fighting corruption and strengthen democracy, particularly in emerging or slightly more fragile states, uh, which coming out of dict dictatorial regimes or without the culture of challenging and questioning things. And then there was around fiscal transparency, such as follow the money, which again feeds into anti-corruption. Uh, and some of the beneficial ownership stuff that the UK has done, uh, and also looking at natural resource transparency so that the resources don't didn't all end up uh, lining the pockets of elites who were feeding themselves, obviously. 
So really, um, the kind of projects we've run over the last uh, four or five or seven years now have have veered from anything from uh, helping uh, somewhere like Croatia build uh, build its own open data portal using the code from data.gov.uk um, and then educating their officials to release that data, uh, which is quite culturally challenging in a former Soviet environment, and also building capacity in their citizenry to, to use and analyse that. So we've worked quite closely with uh, their government, their prime minister's office, um, to get the political will and to, to support that, and with different civil society elements, uh, data users and community groups. And that's worked very well in Croatia. Uh, for example, in Ghana, we've run a project to to help uh, identify employment prospects and areas um, such as that for youth employment. And in Argentina, uh, similarly, it's been all sorts of environmental data. We've also been looking at how you can use procurement data, uh, largely lots of different states in Latin America. We've looked at how to support them understanding better procurement data towards infrastructure projects. Uh, and reforming several access to information laws so that the, those infrastructure projects could be exposed and, and counteract some of the obvious corruption going on. Um, so uh, we funded these projects through through different routes. There are different. There's obviously the Prosperity Fund, which you may have heard of, which is quite a large million pound fund, which mistakenly often is perceived to be about promoting Britain's prosperity, but also basically is about prosperity in country and promoting global growth um, the conflict stability and stabilization conflict security and stabilization fund again uh, and, and the good governments fund are very much about opening up democracies um, and we've done an awful lot in the western balkan region around that um, and bosnia is one of our particular strong points there where we've worked with them to um grow um uh, develop and, and bring really two distinct well three actually in bosnia's case distinct factions ethnically politically um and physically uh together to, to a unified approach and to to create a, a government action plan that's actually helps format their um promote their improve their political process and drive some growth and unify create some unified objectives and reform their electoral system to enable that that to happen as well as uh, help remove some of the perceived elites. I think I will draw that to a close there, Gavin, and take some questions because apart from the fact I'm failing a little bit with PowerPoint for some reason, uh, I think I'm nearly at the end of my time. Thank you. Excellent. <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed, Eleanor. Um, and again, just to remind everybody, if you'd like to put questions to Eleanor, lots to dig into there. Um, you can do so using hashtag IFGDataBytes, uh, using Slido, which is uh, bit.ly slash slidodb10, or by um, putting it into the live stream chat, and uh, one of my colleagues will drop it into Slido as well. So, um, Eleanor, when you first uh, pitched sort of data as diplomacy, I did wonder if we were going to get eight minutes on the fantastic open data set of UK government treaties, but uh, very pleased you decided to talk about this aspect of it instead. <laughs> um, the oh, thank you question, for airing uh, one of my great failures, Gavin. <laughs> oh, not we at all. It it's, it's great to see it out there. 
Um, we've got um, a question from uh, Tim Smith. Um, in terms of measuring the efficacy of the FCO and posts, how do you measure influence and diplomatic clout? What data points do you collect to try to understand that? Uh, so I think this is an area we are not particularly good at. We tend to use, and it's an area that actually my colleague, I think, is doing a session next month at Databytes on how we do some of that analysis. So I'll just set her up to, to cover that in more detail. But uh, it's a very qualitative rather than a quantitative uh, method we're using. Uh, we look at things like audience reach, if we can do, or growth in GDP, or, or, or whether we've managed to affect the change that we're trying to change, trying to affect in approach or attitude or policy. Um, at Bosnia, obviously, uh, it's very easy. Our objective was to get them to become functioning members of the Open Government Partnership and join civil society to get them to engage with government and get government to engage with them. And we've achieved that, not within the timescale I think we wanted to achieve. It's taken about seven years, but 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 the, but the data points are largely political and qualitative rather than quantitative. Excellent, thank you. Um, so I was lucky enough um, to go to Argentina last autumn, uh, thanks to the Foreign Office, to talk about open data over there. And it struck me that you know, there was a real sense of them wanting to learn from the UK and from other members of, of the Open Government Partnership. And they could actually save quite a lot of time by learning from what we'd done. So what do you think the sort of key lessons based on UK experience you'd want to impart to other countries on, on how to do this better? I think there are, I think there are some. Well, well, I I do talk about this quite a lot. I think there's a need for political backing and sustained political backing to embed it into the culture. There's a need to to build a quorum of functioning and people that can understand and analyze any data that is released, and that includes supporting things like a free media, or or, or things like the School of Data Initiative, or just young people with core data analysis skills. So that you can uh, begin to to grow this and see it as a cultural and an actual eff effective change, um, because uh, you also need to build the trust in the government data. I think one of the challenges we have in a lot of places is that government data isn't trusted, and without some validation and verification from civil society or analysts or the media and interrogation, you will never get that trust. and uh, And you need government needs also to accept it's not going to get it right and be seen to fail and accept and learn from the feedback it gets. And that's also very challenging for a lot of these countries that aren't used to that Thank at all. You. Argentina is a great success story. Excellent. And um, we've got another question on Slido. This is from Jeremy. Um, has your role increased dramatically in the COVID era? <laughs> Uh, my role in the COVID era uh, seems to focus largely on handling personal data of British nationals we're trying to repatriate. So unfortunately, we have tried to use data innovatively in that. Um, we've looked very, one of the challenges we've had is not being able to work out how many numbers of UK nationals were at different places around the world. So we've looked at different methods for that. And we've learned from that. Um, we've ended up looking at mobile phone providers but also as a as a, a government department we've looked at different methods for collecting that data and how we can learn from that going forward that help hopefully we will never need to go through this again but if we do we've got a lot of learning learning there yeah excellent 
Um, another one from me. You sort of mentioned um, you know, that very helpful timeline. You know, there was real excitement after 2010 with data.gov.uk and the Open Government Partnership. And in a sense, it's sort of become a bit more business as, as usual now. So I suppose sort of 10 years on from that initial sort of burst, um, where do you think the, the UK is? What do you think the sort of next big thing is? And um, how do we stay at the vanguard of that sort of international movement? So I think there is scope for us to to regain some of that leadership in some of the data science stuff, things like what Tom has just described and some of the, the stuff that I think Terence later on will talk about. Um, there's definitely room for for for, for that. Um, I think uh, there is still space for us to be much more at the forefront of the world in terms of open policy making and being open about how we do things and learning from that. Um, and uh, and again, there is always the fallback on that British great British value of democracy. I think that's been something that's been harder to sell in recent years, but it, it's definitely. Uh, an area that we can build on and grow. I have this passion that at some point we will do, we have the Global Britain campaign and Britain is great and I'm sure everybody's probably seen it as they go through a train station or an airport or a bus stop and I want to see a poster and we do a campaign that data is great and I think there is capacity for that. The UK is a data-driven economy and we should be building on that there. So there is there is potential, we just need to focus on it and release it. Excellent. Um, we've got another question on Slido. I think this is uh, this is from John, who I think presented our very first data bytes uh, back last April. Um, are there common data technologies that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office uses or prefers to use um, across your different projects? Um, we are a Microsoft department so uh data in that respect is actually quite challenging uh, and like any other government department we are struggling with legacy data uh we have and some of the services we've put in some new technologies which are very classic gdse type suggested technologies and i think we're moving more to trying to to capitalize on them and bring them into the more of the mainstream but we are hamstrung in some of the places that we work because we have obviously connectivity and bandwidth issues so the network is a global network and it's quite challenging to bring in some of these modern cloud-based services in places where you can't you're still using effectively a dial-up connection at the, at the moment so, so it's a balance really um and and, and, and and transitioning a global network is also quite difficult for us you um talked about some probably not answered john's uh, question at all but <laughs> um, you talked about some of the sort of case studies of um, work that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office has been doing. I was wondering, are there any countries that um, the FCO particularly looks to, to sort of learn from or you know, particular projects that have caught your eye uh, that the UK should be uh, looking to take lessons from? So I think that we have probably lost ground a little bit in the open government space to France. Uh, that's probably heresy in the UK. Um, I think there is some stuff we can learn from what we're seeing in the innovation that's coming out of Latin and, and Central America as well. Because as you mentioned, Argentina, it's quite exciting. But there's some stuff in Brazil that I think is fascinating. Um, uh, and I think some of the stuff um, in Africa, certainly around in some of the less developed countries, we should be looking at and seeing how we can adapt it to the UK. I don't think uh, it's not. Uh, and by the less developed countries, I mean in terms of the connectivity challenges and actually starting from scratch. Um, I think it's and, and reaching 
people that aren't used to dealing with data. We should be learning from there. Excellent. Um, well, we've only got a few seconds left, um, but again, covered an awful lot of ground. So thank you very much indeed, Eleanor. It's okay. Thanks, Gavin. So great to hear sort of talking about openness as an opportunity and, and not just an, an obligation, uh, which is always a, a great thing to, to hear. Um, so our next speaker uh, this evening will be Glenn from our sponsors for the evening, Microsoft. So hopefully Glenn will appear on screen very shortly. Uh, so Glenn is the National Technology Officer and uh, will be talking about keeping data safe and the benefits of scale. And um, good evening, Glenn. Good evening. Um, whenever you're ready, uh, you can start your presentation and the timer will start ticking. Okay, I'll start my timer. So good evening, everybody. Yeah, so this is Glenn Robinson. I'm the National Technology Officer for Microsoft UK, and I'm going to talk about the benefits of scale and how we apply that scale to our thoughts around data security. Just to give you a bit of an idea of the sort of scale that I'm talking about, um, here are the different data points that we collate to inform our intelligence security graph. As you can see, there's some pretty uh, useful numbers in there. We're able to collect this amount of data because uh, we have things like 258 million uh, 75 million monthly users using Microsoft Teams. Uh, we secure and update and patch 1.2 billion hardware devices running our Microsoft Windows operating system. Uh, we also have a, a fabulous community of developers, over 50 million of them, uh, storing their source code in GitHub. Uh, 675 million people a month using LinkedIn and 90 million gamers using Xbox. And that's all really important for us because it means that we get a breadth and depth of data across both uh, the consumer and business ecosystems. And also we're able to get that data from hardware devices, uh, the software systems that our customers use uh, and places like the Azure cloud uh, where our customers run their own systems. So what sort of insights can we gain from that graph? Well, uh, here's the first example I'm going to talk about. This is uh, two weeks of us uh, tracking two different attacks. Um, what you're seeing here on the screen, every single color represents a single password that is being used to try and access a number of accounts. And on the vertical axis, that is showing you the number of accounts that password is being attempted to be used against. There's actually two attackers that we've identified here. There's one that's consistently using passwords uh, to try and access around about 4,000 accounts over the course of that two-week period. And the other accounter is the, is, is the one that is, is going up to sort of 10,000 and in one instance, in excess of 12,000 different user accounts, it was using that single password to try and gain access to. So this information is obviously super useful for us. One, uh, in regards to identification of bad actors and endpoints that they're coming from in an attempt to try and stop and block these activities. But also, of course, it helps us form um, our security best practice. Um, and of course, uh, here we're only seeing the use of 22 different passwords. And indeed, we're actually tracking the, the hashes of these passwords, not the passwords themselves. So that would be insecure uh, in itself. Um, 
But we know for first and foremost that the use of using a single password to, to secure an account indeed is, is going to be bad security practice because they're quite easily um, uh, brute, force, brute force attacked. So that's why in uh, information like this drives the product uh, innovation across all of the services that I named previously to en enable you to enable things like multi-factor authentication, things like conditional access, which can track your location. And then obviously if log on attempts from different locations are attempted, they can be automatically blocked uh, until they're resolved by an administrator. This next slide shows uh, currently uh, that the most preferred attack vector that, that we're currently able to track. So this is data from 2018 where, uh, where we peaked uh, to show that 0.55% of emails that we were scanning uh, were identified as being a phishing email. This is where an attacker is trying to um, get the person to relinquish um, sensitive information. Now, 0.55% might not sound like a lot, but when we are scanning 470 billion emails every month using our threat detection software, 0.55% uh, can soon add up. And as you can see, uh, this is such a successful attack vector that it's being used more and more, and the data from 2019 continued that trend throughout the year with a bit of a peak uh, in the UK summer, uh, up to about 0.65%. So again, this for us enables us to think, uh, focus on the technology that we can do to identify um, the, the phishing emails uh, first and foremost, but also the sort of guidance because it, uh, phishing is still predicated on the end user um, interacting with these bad actors. So what sort of advice can we give them and help them understand the uh, attacker trade craft so that they can build their own uh, defenses against these attacks? Here's an interesting, uh, or I think it's quite an interesting type of attack vector. Uh, this is Brocoiner. So Brocoiner is a Bitcoin mining tool. It's written in JavaScript and it will install itself in your browser. So it doesn't even need to run on your machine. Uh, Bitcoin is a digital currency which can be used to buy and sell goods anonymously. Um, it's commonly used uh, by bad actors as well as uh, for many genuine purposes, of course. But it means that um, that the ability to be able to install the the code that installs things like Brocoiner into uh, into perfectly good websites. So, so uh, you'd go to a perfectly trusted website and without even knowing it would install this Bitcoin mining uh, application running in your browser, consuming resources uh, on your machine. Um, what we tend to track uh, with this is that as the price of Bitcoin goes up and down, um, so does our encounter rates uh, of the actual software. And indeed, I, I cut the data uh, just this morning for this, uh, for Brocoin encounters. And, and this year, we're seeing an increase in that. I think that's predominantly caused a bit, a bit because of coronavirus and people being taken more unaware and going to these trusted resources which have been compromised. So that's Brocoiner. Um, as I said, all this uh, information that we gather, we try and put to really good use to try and uh, educate um, uh, the users of our software and indeed anyone uh, who wants to protect themselves. So we work very closely with the likes of the National Cyber Security Center, where we uh, contribute and co-author uh, guidance, which is obviously freely available to all of you to go and read and download. And I'd heavily recommend that you do as well as uh, that Microsoft graph. Now, whilst we don't give 
anyone direct access because the information in there, as you can imagine, is, is incredibly sensitive. What we do do is allow you to visualize aspects of that data yourself. So uh, you can go to this website, our Security Insights website, um, where, where you can use Power BI and indeed get access to a range of that data and, and look at it yourself. Um, and also there's a report on there that we've authored where it, it, it contains information about the, the threat itself and also best practice guidance on how to protect yourself uh, against it. So I've included some links uh, if you want to follow up with some more information. The Security Insights website I've just talked about is that first link. The NCSE guidance on how to secure yourself if you use an Office 365. Um, and also we've seen, uh, especially during the COVID period and the shift to home working, that people uh, are now even more susceptible uh, than ever to being compromised. So we've uh, accumulated a bunch of best practice and guidance around that, which you can find on our security blog around secure remote working. I believe I'm at eight minutes. Perfect timing. Thank you very much indeed, um, Glenn. Um, just to remind everybody, if you would like to put any questions uh, to Glenn, you can do so using hashtag IFGDataBytes, popping it into the chat on the live stream, uh, or also using Slido, which is bit.ly slash slidodb10. Um, and of course, if anybody is having any connection problems tonight, a full video of all of this um, will be going up on the Institute for Government website at some point tomorrow. So you can always catch up on anything you've missed. So, um, Glenn, let's get going with some questions. Um, let, let's dive straight into the into the C word, shall we? Um, you sort of mentioned it um, a little bit in terms of, um, sort of coronavirus. What what are you seeing so far and what do you think sort of coronavirus is likely to mean in terms of um, things that people might try and how public attitudes might be changing um, as a result of uh, lots of discussion in the, in the media about how people's data is being used? Yeah, so so I think there's, there's two possible two big themes that I'm observing right now. The first one um, is the shift to home working from a data security point of view. So especially government organizations and many of them that we've worked with for many years haven't had a evolved working from home policy. Um, and, and that means traditionally they've had a security posture, which has been more like a perimeter security, uh, come and work in our building, we're going to defend you and, and your privacy and the work that you're doing. And suddenly now they've had to have, in some cases, tens of thousands of staff are now working remotely in a more decentralized manner. And of course, when you suddenly send all those people home and they're all trying to connect in on a VPN and that you haven't issued them um, secure managed devices and, and now you're possibly having to get them to use an unmanaged personal device, you're exposing yourself to a multitude of different risks. So first and foremost, um, we're looks like um, and, and the sort of standards around just normal uh, security hygiene that the people need to think of, whether it's a fully managed corporate device or whether it's a personal device that they're using, um, how they can, uh, most phishing, uh, password brute force attacks, even uh, malware like uh, Brocoiner, um, you can do a really good um, effort to protect yourself against just by doing the, the absolute basics like ensuring your machine is patched and making sure you've got antivirus software installed and make sure you're um, adding plenty of skepticism when you're receiving 
strange emails from people um, offering you all sorts of wonderful things. So, so that will go a long way. And of course, uh, technology can play a really important role to help people uh, become more secure. Um, the, 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 second, uh, the second point that you raised was more around uh, the actual sort of data and, and the sort of sharing of data. And I think, we, I'm sure as Terence is about to, and as we already heard, the sort of sharing of data around government uh, has been a key uh, a key challenge, to be honest, because previously uh, the mindsets around that and the work that we've been doing is generally uh, p people are worried about uh, relinquishing access to the data and what others might do to it and what you can learn from it. And I think during COVID, we've seen a much greater appetite because it's all about how we just need to get straight to value. So whilst we need to take a risk managed approach to data, we need the, the value so quickly to save people's lives. So th that reaction has been good. Um, and obviously the work that we've been doing, we've been able to support that by still um, dealing more with that risk management component around data. So how can you keep the data secure? How can you audit um, who's accessing data? How can you secure access to that data in a more really sort of granular uh, way? And all that technology does exist and many people aren't using it or familiar with it, but, but it, the, the technology uh, for the most part is there to help with this challenge. It's about, and I think, um, uh, we heard right at the outset around this more around sort of data standards that is causing lots of friction between the ability to share data together. So still lots of challenges to overcome uh, security just being one of them. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I suppose the next question I wanted to ask was, what are the particular challenges when it comes to sort of protecting government customers um, from all of this? And sort of working with them in general? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question because I, I don't think of government customers being too different. Because we're, So, for example, when we think about all of our customers who can look at um, uh, protecting children's identities when they're playing multiplayer online games on Xbox, and straight away that's a huge concern. We want to protect them from... Um, obviously, you know, grooming and, and all those nefarious actors that go on. So, you know, we, we already have a broad set of controls and an approach around all the sorts of um, uh, individuals that we're looking to protect. And we can apply them wherever that protection is, is necessary. So you, you can look at the data type, you can apply classifications to it and then apply all sorts of relevant controls around data portability, um, access to data, all those sort of good things. Um, we also take a strong uh, compliance approach to data as well. So it's about when people are using our systems that we offer um, uh, as much transparency as we actually can as to then what happens with that data when it's in the cloud, because a lot of people are worried about all oh, this cloud thing, where's that data going to be? Who's going to get access to it? So, and I think, you know, and I think that it's right for customers to be skeptical. I think that people, other organizations do use uh, other people's data and they're monetizing it. And there's the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal and all those events that are causing distrust. So because of that, we're, we're taking a very different approach in terms of maximum transparency around what we do with customers' data when it's in our system to provide that assurance uh, from a compliance and a standards point of view that we follow and adopt and the controls necessary in place to enforce them uh, and to achieve those standards. So, yeah, so when it comes to our government customers, we I'd like to think that with a combination of all of those things, security, compliance, uh, transparency, um, that we can satisfy 
pretty much uh, any demand that they might have for data, whether that's on-premise or whether it's in the cloud or anything in between. Excellent, thank you. Um, we've got a question from Jeremy. Um, do you ever handle on what proportion of phishing emails you're picking up? Are there sly people who are clever enough to slip through your net? Um, I would ask how they do it, but that's probably not a question that we should be answering in public. So, um, so go for it. <laughs> Yeah, so so of course, um, uh, th th there's always going to be the first of types, and uh, and of course we're using um, very complicated heuristics to try and sort of forecast the sort of uh, evolution of these types of attacks as well, um, as well as using sort of uh, ethical hackers and people like that who are trying to outthink the bad actors, and, and many of them will work. So we have over three uh, three and a half thousand cybersecurity specialists uh, working in our teams who are both monitoring and protecting, as well as teams trying to outthink uh, those bad actors. Um, what I would say is, again, the benefits of scale that we have, where, where we're scanning those 470 billion emails, it does mean that when we identify things for the first time, they do tend to, they do tend to stand out from the norm. And then very quickly, we can apply the controls that the, the, the both the detection um, and the guidance around them uh, incredibly quickly to a, a huge global uh, user base of our system. So um, I, I, I'm never going to suggest that, that we're going to be ahead of those bad actors in every single scenario. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. What we can do is limit the impact of that and respond incredibly quickly to those threats and enable all, all of our customers to benefit from the investments we make. You've actually preempted what I was going to squeeze in as a final question in the sort of 35 seconds or so we've got left, which is, what do you think realistically success would look like, given that you're never, well, probably not going to be able to all, you know, catch everybody, as it were? Yeah, exactly. I think um, I think for me, it's, it's really about this conversation of this sort of paradigm shift from uh, sort of institutions thinking we're going to secure things around the edges of sort of perimeter security techniques to so suddenly, you know, we'll talk about defense in depth, we'll talk about uh, zero trust architectures. Um, they're the sort of, if I heard more customers coming to me saying, this is what we want to achieve, you know, a zero trust architectural approach and your systems will play a big uh, role in that, uh, we, we hope. Um, that understanding uh, of how to protect yourself in these cloud integrated ways will allow a lot more of these other conversations around open data sharing to happen more fluidly without the sorts of um, negative perceptions that, that still persist. Now, we're out of time, but there is one final question that's popped up on Slido. So if you can answer this in one sentence, um, this is from John again. Do you think the post-COVID world will herald a new era of data sharing in government? Oh, look, John, um, I hope so. Um, so I can, uh, based on the interactions I'm having with government already, I can see there's an appetite in terms of understanding what that world is going to look like. So how do we unlock the value in a secure and managed way where we ensure uh, individual privacy and all that good stuff that we absolutely have to maintain. So um, so yes, the conversations are happening. How far we'll get and how long it will take us to get there is obviously a vastly different question that I couldn't say, but we're actively trying to support any efforts to try and drive this conversation forward at a pace and help accelerate it. Glenn, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, and we'll now move on to our final speaker for this evening. Uh, it will be Terence Eden, um, who will be uh, from NHSX, who will be talking about 
the thing on his T-shirt. <laughs> Why making things open makes things better. Uh, Terence, um, take it away whenever you're ready and the timer will start. I just want to say, first of all, a huge thank you everyone to turning up, but also all the people who've been working nights and weekends and everything else to, to keep the NHS running and all the people who are doing all sorts of you know, wonderful technical things. So, um, right, I'm going to hit share screen. This definitely will work this time. Um, and we shall see how this goes. So, um, hello everyone. I assume I have eight minutes starting now until I hear someone saying something else. Um, <laughs> hi everyone. Uh, my name is Terence Eden. I work for NHSX. I am the head of Open Technology uh, and I'm here to talk about this thing, which is our philosophy. Make things open, it makes things better. In the spirit of openness, we borrowed this from someone else. This is a, a GDS sticker uh, and NHSX is taking it on too. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what the NHS as a whole is doing, uh, as is NHSX. So the first thing that we get asked is, how are NHSX going to develop standards to speed up innovation? Everyone wants more innovation. Everyone wants it to be quicker. Surely the best thing we can do is to develop some standards. And well, no, we're not going to develop any new standards. Uh, we want open standards. We want international collaboration on open standards. Uh, very. Uh, our very firm opinion is if it doesn't use open standards, we're not interested. We see so many products being sold into the NHS, which only work with other products from that same manufacturer. And that just keeps us you know, locked into a monoculture. We can't afford to do that anymore. We see so many great, wonderful, innovative doctors who are trying to do things. And they say, but it all stops at this point because I can't get data from system A into system B. And system B won't talk to system C. And then I have to fax something. And it's all because we haven't made sure in the past that things use open standards. So what sort of standards am I talking about? Some of them will be familiar to, to a fairly general audience, you know, HTML5 and Unicode and making sure things are accessible. You know, we're not going to write our own NHS accessibility standards. The W3 have already got a wonderful set of standards, WCAG 2.1. We are not going to write our own web browser. You know, uh, we're going to insist that people use HTML. And then on the medical side, Again, there's a whole bunch of international standards like SNOMED and FHIR and OpenEHR, a whole bunch of things like that, where what we're saying is, why would we make a UK-specific standard? Why would we make an England-specific standard? Why would we make a, a Nottingham-specific standard? Well, we, we wouldn't. We want to use global open standards. It's the only way that we will get interoperability, and that's the only way that we will drive down cost and drive up innovation. The next thing uh, on my list is open data. We've heard so much about open data and it's it's a wonderful diplomatic tool. Uh, but when we talk about open data in the NHS, people get a bit nervous. So let me clarify, when I say open data, not confidential data, we are not talking about putting your medical record up on GitHub. That is not going to happen. <laughs> um, what we want to do is when we release open data for it to be population level, or suitably anonymized, or for people who have very specifically opted in to sharing their data with uh, organizations who have a genuine need for it and proper privacy and security policies and uh, and everything like that. So th this is, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna dwell too much on open data because you will have seen in the news over the past few weeks, just the sheer amount of open data that uh, people like PHE, Public Health England are publishing and the NHS, uh, DHSC, publishing and it is 
you know, we're not hiding behind statistics anymore. We're not saying, well, you'll get the release at the end of the month. We're, we're publishing stuff basically daily. I wonder, and, and this is me speculating, which always gets me into trouble, when, when do we move to hourly publishing? When do we move to per minute publishing? What are the challenges in getting open data, um, you know, on a live basis? Uh, it's something for us to, to think about. Um, and this, this is a, an important point. This data, these data aren't hours to hoard. So many people seem to think, oh, I've got data, I'm gonna gather it. I'm gonna be like a, a dragon in Lord of the Rings uh, and keep all of this big pile of data to myself and that will make me rich. And it, it doesn't. Data only has value when it is shared and it has the most value when it is shared openly. But how do we get data out of the NHS? Do we like, send an FOI? Do we wait for a fax? Do we have to have it posted out to us? I mean, that's, that's rubbish. That's 20th century way of thinking. No, we want to move to, to an open API model of the NHS. I, well, NHSX wants to see data flow through the system. And the best way to do that is with open APIs. So for those of you who aren't familiar, an API application programming interface is basically the way two computers speak to each other uh, and exchange data. Um, now, again, when we say open APIs, um, we don't mean that absolutely anyone can log on to the NHS and download anyone's medical records. No, we're going to make sure that these APIs are properly secured and that only authorized people ha have access to them. But we do want to make sure uh, of a couple of things. One, uh, we want them properly documented. So for too long, if you wanted to connect to uh, specific NHS systems or third party systems, you had to fill in a big contributor agreement and then download a PDF and then the PDF was wrong and you had to email. No, let's just get all of our documentation on the web as open API v3. Um, that's, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, we are also looking at open source as a way to speed up innovation, something which is definitely in the news at the moment. And the thing is, we know that open source is cheaper, it is faster, it is more secure, and it is morally right. Um, we don't need to pay millions of pounds for simple bits of software. We can create some of this software ourselves and then share it around the system, something I'm going to get uh, onto uh, in a bit. But I, I'm conscious that I've kept you uh, for a little bit, so I'm going to rattle through this. We we do hear a lot of excuses around open source. This is uh, some of my favorites. Oh, well, open source is not secure. You know, it's hackers and everything. And, you know, that's... Gavin, am I allowed to swear on this? Oh, I'm going to swear. I, it's highly you know. <laughs> It's been a long day, but look, you know, this is this is WannaCry. This ripped through the NHS a few years ago. Um, what does WannaCry run on? It runs on old Windows boxes. Um, you know, running closed source software did not save us from WannaCry. Um, now, of course, if we'd had old unpatched Linux boxes, that wouldn't have saved us either. But you know, it, it's not a case of if you use closed source, you will be safe. We know that's not true. Um, we also get told that our work is too sensitive oh, this is very sensitive stuff. We can't use open source. And again, look, you can go to github.com slash GCHQ. There, there is GCHQ's GitHub repos with a whole bunch of stuff that they use. There is the National Crime Agency. You know, most of the stuff that the NHS does is not this sort of super secure 
thing. You know, we can share. We should be sharing with with other hospitals in the UK and around the world. We should be making our code open so that people can audit it. We want people to have confidence in the products that we create and that we use. When algorithms are being used to determine whether you've got this disease or that disease or whether the scan came back positive, you should be able to interrogate those algorithms and understand the biases which are, which are in them. We get this as well. What if other countries steal our code? Well, good. You know, I think if the last few weeks, few months have shown anything is that diseases do not respect national borders. If we can make the health of our nation better, great. If we can make the health of other nations better, you know, that's fantastic. And finally, is this, it's community. Just sticking stuff up on a GitHub repo doesn't you know, it's the minimum we can do. We need to build a community around this. And so this is what I am asking all of you to do. When we start releasing open source code, uh, which we're already doing, I'd love you to take a look. I'd love you to give us feedback. Tell us where we're doing it wrong. Tell us where we're doing it right. Uh, and please share it with your friends and your community, because this is what we believe. When we make things open, it makes things better. Thank you very much indeed, everyone. Thank you. Terence, thank you very much indeed. Well worth the wait. Um, somebody has uh, sent me a DM on Twitter saying, make things unmuted, it makes things uh, better. So uh, I'm sorry, I can't <laughs> we're very hear glad that. that we... but, um, <laughs> I, I'm going to get a sticker. I, I, if I'm going to get make things unmuted as a T-shirt, definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Um, just to remind everybody that um, you can submit questions via IFG Databytes, the hashtag on Twitter, via Slido, which is bit.ly slash slidodb10, or via the live stream chat. And our first question comes from Slido, from Emma. Um, Terence, hi, she says. If you're using global hi. standards, can you tell us how you're redesigning procurement to ensure the NHS only buys in technology that's interoperable? That's a Brilliant question. So there's um, a couple of things which we are doing, uh, some of which have been delayed because of, well, everything. Um, we are looking at what changes we can make to the NHS standard contract. Um, that's not a simple thing. Um, we are also instigating spend controls in NHSX, which basically says if you are planning on spending more than X thousand pounds, you have to go through spend controls process and one of the questions in there is what open standards do you use and if the answer is none we go go away and think about what you've done um, we are also uh, you may have seen that we um, publish isns um, information standards notices um, and i spend i did spend a lot of time going around to conferences and to companies telling them uh, about this um, i'm now doing that a bit more virtually but um, this we can't do this alone so so part of this is we need to get out and spread the word and we need you to do that uh, as well um we we need uh, companies and nhs trusts and organizations to understand that this this is the new normal that if it's not interoperable we're not interested in uh, in funding it and i'm sure Excellent. that as, okay. as as we sort of leave this corona uh, time of Corona, uh, we'll be able to put, publish more policies and, and hopefully more things like that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so anonymous on Slido, uh, it's our first uh, contact tracing question. Um, if NHSX is uh, committed to international open standards, why does the UK need mm -hmm. a unique approach to COVID tracing? And in fact, Ruth, uh, Ruth Dixon uh, asks a not dissimilar question. Hi, Terence. Should the UK use the same virus tracing app as other EU countries? So uh, brilliant questions. Um, 
obviously this is a hot topic so i'm slightly limited in what i can say although i'm you know i'm discussing this on a separate screen at the moment so when we first kicked off the contact tracing app uh, several weeks ago there was no international standard so um if there was um i'm i'm sure we would have looked at it but you know in the meantime we did not want to wait for a sort of nascent standard to come out so you know over the last few weeks we've been testing a, um, an raf base and you know in various parts of the country and uh, we're doing a big um, uh, a push on the um, Isle of Wight, uh, which I think starts um, on Thursday for the general public. Um, and all of that would have been delayed if we'd waited for um, a full international consensus. It, you know, th this does not exist yet. And, you know, uh, I know Apple and Google are working really hard on that and we're having daily conversations with them. Um, just last week, I was in a call with I don't know, it must have been a dozen different countries where we were talking about all our different approaches. Uh, some of who, some of them are waiting for this standard, others are going their own way. We realize that the second the airports get back to normal and trains get back to normal, there's gonna be a lot of cross-border traffic. And do you want to download, you know, if, if you hop on the Eurostar, do you want to download the French app and the UK app? Mm, probably not. Will you even be able to get the UK app in a foreign app store? So yeah, I completely agree. We need international standards for this, but at the moment, none exist. So that's why we took the decision that we would rather get something done, get it into trial, see what users think about it, do the privacy and impact assessments and all of this stuff. Um, and for more information, I suggest watching uh, Matthew Gould's evidence to the select committee. Thank you. Um, a couple of questions which I'll take together, um, sort of coming at standards from um, not completely um, disparate angles. Uh, so Peter Wells uh, notes, open standards, data APIs are great. They enabled the web, but they also enabled terrible bits of the web and new monopolies. What lessons do we need to learn? And then from Chris Francis, there's a lot of difference between no standard and open standards. Are we making the perfect the enemy of the good? So yeah, how do we stop monopolies? Um, he, like most people, every 12 months, I change my gas and electricity supplier. I go onto a website, I click a few buttons and I flip over and it's, it's seamless and my direct debit gets transferred and it's easy. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that with NHS technology? If you suddenly said, you know what, our email provider isn't great, click, 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 great, we're transferred over to them. Oh, we don't like, you know, the software which runs our MRI machines, click, 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 move over. I mean, that's the ideal that I guess we, we would like to get to where you can just swap between any bit of kit that you want because it's all interoperable. That's not gonna happen quickly, but we do want to get to a point where you can pick interoperable components from any supplier. Might you choose to pick them all from one supplier? Yes, that's a possibility. But if you've got the option to move between um, vendors, that's really important. If you look at uh, Facebook and Twitter, I mean, you can export your data from there, but it's not like you can put a new, your, take your friends list from Facebook and put it on a, a brand new social network. Um, that's what we want to try and stop happening, um, uh, which I hope answers that question. And the other thing, are we making perfect the enemy of good? I'm constantly worried about that. Um, and it's what we are looking at. So um, yes, we, we poss possibly are, but you know, sometimes the alternative is, are we making really bad decisions because it seems like that's the, the sensible or the, you know, that this is what everyone else does. 
um, sometimes it pays for us to to have a pause and um, assess all of our options. Excellent, thank you. And um, Janet asks, and um, hi, Terence, will the NHSX COVID nineteen contact tracing app code be open source? And just to add to that, I had a couple of questions submitted to me in advance as well, asking um, about whether the risk assessment um, will also be open and how you will ensure ongoing transparency, open approaches as the app is iterated, and whether that will be done in sort of natural language explanations of how the app works um, as well. Brilliant questions. Um, I can't answer the DPIA one because I'm not a privacy lawyer. Um, so I don't, I just don't know about that. Um, I have, I'm literally staring at a big red button here, um, which says, uh, make this repository on GitHub public. Um, and I'm just waiting for the 500 people who are interested to, to sign it off. Um, I would love to turn my laptop around so you can see my other laptop uh, with that button on there. Um, so yes, it, it will be open source. We, we made that very firm commitment. Um, it will be uh, up on GitHub as, I mean, literally as, as soon as I get the go ahead, I'm pushing that big red button. Um, will we, um, sorry, what, the, the other question is, will we do it in a sort of understandable fashion? Um, so we're uh, gonna be publishing a bunch of design documentation. Now naturally, you know, this has been written for people designing apps and designing services. Um, so I hope it is readable. It will certainly be accessible in, you know, the technical sense to people with screen readers. Um, I don't think we've had time to sort of make the the easy read version for people who, you know, you know, it, it, if you don't understand what Java programming is or what Swift programming is, this is going to be a bit dense and impenetrable. And for that, I'm I'm incredibly sorry. You know, we but the repo will be open. Um, raise a pull request, raise an issue. You know, when we'll we'll do our best. Excellent. Um, well, we've only got about 20 seconds left. Uh, we do have a final question from Jeremy. Um, slow diffusion or revolution in the NHS? Lots of different regions, lots of different standards, lots of different people. How do you affect change? Um, if you want to try to answer that in a, in a couple of sentences, I'll be very impressed. I mean, with a beard like this, I have to say revolution, don't I? Um, it's about getting everyone on board. We are a community and we've got to act like one. Excellent, a perfect note on which to end. Terence, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. Have a great evening. So it falls to me uh, to bring um, events to a close. Normally, I'd say that I'm the only thing standing between you and the drinks outside, but you're in your own homes. Who knows what you've been doing for the last hour and a half or so. Um, so I'm just going to do a few parish notices. I'm going to share my screen uh, for one final time because the very important information that you're going to want to see is how to join us for virtual drinks. Uh, in a few moments after this event has finished, you can go to bit.ly slash db10drinks and use the password ifgdb10. Um, as I mentioned in the opening presentation, uh, dates for your diary, the next data bytes will be on uh, Wednesday the 3rd of June, kindly supported by SAP. After that, it'll be on Wednesday, the 1st of July, kindly supported by ADR UK, uh, that's Administrative Data Research UK. Um, again, we're looking to keep these going first Wednesday of the month, so do get in touch um, if you'd be interested in sponsoring. Um, there are lots more IFG events going on um, over the next few days and weeks um, on everything from emergency powers to fixing adult social care to devolution. I'm also looking forward to uh, announcing a very exciting uh, digital government related event um, shortly, so do keep your eyes peeled for that. 
Um, so finally, that brings me to um, some final thank yous for this evening. First, the brilliant team at the um, Institute uh, for helping to make this happen virtually again, and to uh, Lewis for live tweeting at IFG events. Uh, thank you to all of you for watching and some brilliant questions. A huge thank you to Microsoft, our sponsors for the evening. And please do uh, join me in a virtual round of applause for four fantastic speakers this evening. We're incredibly grateful to them. Um, they covered an awful lot of ground. I learned an awful lot. There's a lot to um, digest. So hopefully uh, you can join us for virtual drinks uh, where we can continue the discussion. So thank you very much indeed, everybody. Good night. <laughs>